Go ahead and be seated. Grab your Bibles. The 23rd Psalm is where we're going to hang out again today. We're in week three of a series called The Shepherd. Uh, If you didn't get a bulletin when you came in and you've got a smartphone, you can download our Journey Church International app. All of our notes will be in that. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We expected you to be here. All the scripture I read from the Bible will be on the screen, so it'll be super easy to follow along. If you have a smartphone, you can download the Bible app. It's free, and it is very easy to follow along in the church with the Bible app and find your place in scripture if you have that. Week three of a series called The Shepherd, seeing Jesus through the lens of this great 23rd Psalm, Marching up to Christmas services, which, Lord willing, are going to begin and be held this week in a very, very cold week of December. Um, I hope you've made plans already to come. We start Thursday night at 7. We might be sliding around in the snow Thursday. We've got two services um, on Friday, uh, and then we've got three on Saturday. Um, The Chiefs play Saturday at noon, which encourages me and discourages me. It encourages me for this reason. As I've begun to look at the forecast this week, if you haven't yet, don't. Just like put on your coat and come to church. But if you have, it's going to be very, very cold. And I am encouraged by the fact that when people love something, they get out in the cold And the Chiefs in Arrowhead Stadium reminded me of that. Because they'll play on Christmas Eve at noon, and it'll be 8 degrees, and the stadium will be full. Because when you love something, the weather doesn't matter. So that encourages me that when you love something, weather doesn't matter. And I hope to see many of you here on a very, very cold and snowy Christmas weekend. It also discourages me because if you don't plan to come Thursday or Friday, and then remember on Saturday while you're getting ready to head to church that the Chiefs are playing or you plan to come to the 4 o'clock service and they go into overtime, I know some of you are going to feel called by God to finish the game and just maybe watch online. So that's a little discouraging, but we'll just kind of figure it out. Um, Make sure you choose your Christmas service and don't come alone. Remember, 8 out of 10 people surveyed who do not regularly attend church were asked if they wanted to go to church on Christmas, and the answer was yes. They just didn't know where to to go or who to go with, which means the regular friends and family you have in your life who normally don't ever go to church are looking at Christmas week this year wishing they had somewhere to go to church because they're watching all their friends on social media do it. They just don't know where to go or who to go with. So you got an 80% chance if you reach out to someone and say, hey, want to go to church with me for my Christmas service of them saying yes. you got a 100% chance that I will tell them about Jesus. And then we'll just hope God plants some seeds in their heart that turn into transformation. Like that would be the goal. So we've been in Psalm 23 all this month. We'll continue it until we finish it at our Christmas services, but today we're focused very specifically on verse 6. Every week during the series, we've read from the New King James Version out loud together, and then we've gone and we've asked Eugene Peterson, that pastor who pastored in the Pacific Northwest for 50 years, how he would capture the spirit of what David was trying to say if David said it in December of 2022. He paraphrased the Bible in the English language so that it might be really easy for the people he was teaching to understand. And he talked about verse 6 this way. Here's how he translated verse 6. He says, your beauty and your love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. So the first two weeks, we've learned six really valuable things about Jesus as our shepherd. We've learned that he's the one who connects us to God. 
We've learned that he's the one who satisfies the requirements that God has for anyone being connected to him. And he, we've learned that he's the one who blows life into us dirtbags. Um, those of us who were created from dust, but who have come to life because of Jesus, it's the spirit of God that breathes life into us. We also learned last week that Jesus is the one who helps us on the darkest night of our soul because he doesn't leave us. And we've learned that he fights for us by sometimes fighting against us because we have some things inside of us as sheep that need to come out once we become a follower of the great shepherd. And we learn that Jesus gives us renewed life after we've walked through the most difficult times in life. We don't have to stay there. Jesus anoints our head with oil and he says, let's, I know it's going to be hard and I know life will forever be different, but let's start over and move forward. Like Jesus is a really good shepherd. Here's what you need to know as we look at verse 6. All that stuff I just talked about was God's idea. Not our idea, it was God's idea. Eugene Peterson used the phrase that God chases after me. Here's what you need to understand. The great message of the Bible is not that we have to spend our life searching for God. It's that God exists in a posture of pursuing us. You say, why does God use Jesus to connect us to him? Because he wants to be connected to us. Why does God use Jesus to satisfy his requirements for us? Because we couldn't be with God without Jesus. Why does he walk with us through the darkest nights of our life? Because he wants us to survive. Like the message of the Bible is not that humanity has to spend their entire life pursuing God, but that God spends our entire life pursuing us because of his love for us. He chases after us. And I told you the background of David's life as he writes the 23rd Psalm. He's not trying to write a tweet that would go viral. It would have. He's not trying to write a poem that would get published. It did. He was just saying, this is who God has been to me. And in Psalm 139, he took an entire psalm to basically say what he said in verse 6, which is this. Every day of my life when I looked up, God's been there. He's never left me. He's never abandoned me. And he summarizes in one verse this one thought like, God has always been there for me. And it is the verse that we're going to study today. Look at verse 6 one more time. We're just going to break it apart while we try to learn who God is. David closes his psalm with a summary statement. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we learned in week one the role that God performs as our shepherd. We learned last week about our reality as sheep. This week, we're going to learn three spiritual attributes that are true of God. At least they were in David's life, and I believe through Jesus they can be in our lives. What are those attributes? The first is goodness. Surely your goodness shall follow me. When we look at the Hebrew word for goodness, it's the word tov. On the screen and on your notes, it'll be spelled tob, T-O-B, but there is no B in the, in the Hebrew language, B is always V, so there really wasn't an Abraham, it was Avraham, like there is no B in the Hebrew language. Uh, for those of you who have Jewish friends, they might say at a moment of like a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a bait mitzvah, they might say mazel tov, that's the word, good, good luck, that's what mazel tov means, mazel tov. Um, this is the word tov, tov that was used every day in Genesis when it said God looked at the day he'd made and it was tov. It was, it was good. When we look at this, here's, here's what God is saying about life and here's what David is saying about life. God looked at all of life in Genesis chapter 1 and he said, that's good. It is the way that I would want it to be. David said, you have the ability to make my life the way you want it to be 
even though I live in this terribly broken world, what we're going to learn is that God's goodness is a response. The key word here is response. God's goodness is a response to a world filled with death and evil. His goodness is a response in the midst of that. So I want you, if you haven't already, to circle maybe the key word that we won't study, but we'll keep coming back to, surely goodness shall follow me. Circle the word follow. It would be theologically incomplete, maybe even inaccurate, to simplify the role of God in our life by saying this, he follows after us to clean everything up. Probably incomplete, but that is the thought. God chases us through our broken life, and his response, when we are broken and we break things, his response is to come back and make them useful and usable to us and to him. This is how he approached the first sin that was ever recorded in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can flip back there. For those of you who are pretty new to maybe a Christian church, we believe the Bible is God's word to humanity to understand who he is so they can live in relationship with him. And it starts with a creator God that created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The pinnacle of his creation was humanity, who God wanted to live in relationship with. But he did not want to make them robots, so he created them and said, you can live life my way, which is eternal and you'll have everything that I offer you or you can live life your way. It will come with death and it'll make things harder but ultimate love is to have a choice so you have a choice. And we find out that the first two human beings created, Adam and Eve, chose to do things their own way instead of God's way. They did things God's way for a little bit. It must have gotten boring to them so they chose to do things their own way and kind of all of life began to immediately fall apart. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read about after Adam and Eve chose things their own way and things were going sideways. And it says in Genesis 3, 7 through 15, then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered. That, by the way, isn't tremendous construct in the Hebrew language. For those of us reading it in the Hebrew language, that question might look like this. Look at where you are now. I gave you a chance to live for me or to live for yourself. You chose yourself. Look at where that has gotten you. That's the question. Not, hey, where are you? But look at where you are now. Look at where you are now. Adam answered, but I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He was naked and afraid. And that is now a television show. Verse 11, that has nothing to do with like Bible or theology. That's called ADD in the mind of the preacher. It's like, hey, that's a show. Um, verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and you will strike his head. You may underline or circle verse 15. In Latin, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first time in the Bible that God announces the good news of Jesus. 
It's the first verse in the Bible about Jesus, that someone born of woman will come who will be bruised by the spiritual enemy, but who will ultimately crush the spiritual enemy. Now, before we get on with the text, please realize this. At this point, Adam and Eve have not apologized for what they've done. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. They've not apologized, they've not repented, they've not asked God to fix it. They're just kind of living in the consequence of their sin, which is bad, which is shame, which is hiddenness, which is death coming. And God shows up and he says, I'm going to fix this. They did not ask him to, but God showed up and said, I'm going to fix it. And they continue not to repent, say, I'm sorry. They continue to not try to fix the situation. But in verse 21, it says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve, and he clothed them. Here's what you need to write down on your notes. Thank God that his requirement for being your shepherd is not goodness from you. This is nowhere more clearly seen than the story of Adam and Eve, who were not only good, they were not even apologetic for their bad. Yet God shows up and says, I'll fix this. And I'll fix your shame and your hiddenness. I know you've not asked yet, but I know what you're feeling. And I know you need to. Watch what grace is. God steps into a situation and he says, I'm going to give you what you need, not what you deserve. I'm going to give you what you need, not even what you've asked for, because you've not even asked for this yet. But I'm going to help you, and I'm going to cover the shame and the hiddenness that you feel right now. Thank God that his requirement for being our shepherd is not that we are good. Because scripture tells us that on our own, we are not good and we wouldn't even seek God. We'd never say sorry to God. We'd never ask God for his help. In Romans 3.12, the Apostle Paul, the great theologian of Christianity, says, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Like, there's no good people. Yet, Jesus says of these worthless people who aren't good, in John 10.10, remember the partner chapter in the New Testament to the 23rd Psalm is John 10.10 where Jesus talks about himself as a shepherd. He said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Not good people, all people, broken people. To people who together are worthless without Jesus, he shows up and says, not, I, not that I want to punish you, I want to bless you, not because you've asked, but because I'm good. I want you not only to have life, I want you to have the best life. So God followed the sin of Adam and Eve with goodness. And God, through Jesus, follows the sin of our lives with goodness, with this tremendous offer of life. Please watch this. God's big plan for your life is goodness for you, not goodness from you. One of the ways you know if Jesus is your shepherd yet is whether or not you're still keeping score of your goodness. And trying to figure out this week if you put more goodness than badness on the scorecard and on the scoreboard so that like Jesus might bless you. One of the ways you know that Jesus is your shepherd and not your banker is that you stop trying to cash in your goodness and you rely 100% on his to make you right with God. Amen? Like that's a, that's a powerful thought. Goodness doesn't come from us. Brokenness comes from us. But on the back end of that, goodness follows. 
because our shepherd is good. Amen? What's attribute number two? Mercy. Attribute number two is mercy. As we continue to roll through the Psalm 26.3, we read that God gives us mercy. So here's some fun theology for you. If the gift of goodness is something we've been given, the gift of mercy is something that is withheld. It's kind of how grace and mercy go together. In verse 3, we learn that the shepherd is the one who satisfies all of God's requirements for our life in order for us to be eternally connected to God. What are the two requirements of us to be eternally connected to God? There are two. One, you live a life of absolute perfection. And if you don't live a life of absolute perfection, the other requirement is that you must die for your sin and that death is an eternal death separated from God. You're like, wow, I don't meet the first requirement. I don't want to meet the second requirement. So Jesus walks into our story. And Jesus satisfies both of those requirements. How? We are imperfect people, but in grace, he hands us his perfection. His goodness is, you have not aced your test, but I'm going to give you my 100. Grace is God gives us the perfection of Jesus, even though we didn't earn it. What is mercy? Mercy is if you sin even one time, the penalty for sins is death and, and an eternity away from God. Grace says, I'm going to give you the perfection of Christ. Mercy says, and I'm not going to punish you for sins against him. Yeah. One is given, one is withheld. I'm not going to punish you for your sin. I'm going to withhold that punishment in mercy because of what your shepherd did for you. This is a beautiful word in the Hebrew language. It is one of the most... Um, I don't want to say popular. It's probably one of the most affectionate Hebrew terms in the Hebrew language. It's the word chesed. The Hebrew word mercy is the word chesed, which when you translate it is the word loyalty, obligation, and faithfulness. I want you to watch this. This is not how the Bible describes how we love God. This is how the Bible describes God loving us. God is loyal to us. Because he's made a promise to us, and he is now obligated, based on his faithfulness, to keep his promise. Maybe it's most simply described loyal love. God told his people Israel. He told his people who would meet him through Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, that he would be faithful to them even when they were faithless to him. And because of his loyalty, because of his obligation to uphold his promises because he is faithful. When we are not faithful, God loves us with this loyal love. But you need to see mercy is just like goodness. Once again, mercy has to be a response to our life. Mercy is a response to our sinful and broken lives throughout our entire lives. Mercy doesn't come first, mercy comes second. It's like we act and then God reacts. We act in brokenness. God reacts in mercy. Look, just look at the order again. Surely mercy shall follow me. I'm probably going to go ahead and make a mess of things from time to time. Thank God mercy is following me. But watch this through the lens of Jesus. The only reason mercy can follow us is because Jesus went before us to clear the path of righteousness. Like the only reason mercy can tag along behind us and keep making broken things better is because Jesus went before us. Verse 3 says that the shepherd leads us in paths 
of righteousness. So the only reason mercy can follow us is because Jesus went first. And he went first in what? Mercy. What is mercy? It's withholding something that you deserve. What did we deserve? We deserve death for our sins. What did the shepherd do? He went before us to the cross so that his cross could build a connection between broken people and a holy God. Mercy can follow because Jesus led first. You know the major difference between a shepherd and a cattle driver, right? It's their position to the flock they're moving. Shepherds are always in front, and the sheep follow. Cattle drivers often lead from behind or the side, and they push. Jesus knew he could not push us to the cross first, so he got there first. So that mercy could follow us. Several years ago, we were in Israel, and we were in the ancient Decapolis city of Beit Shan. At the tail end of Beit Shan, there's a huge tail that's been built up over the generation after generation after generation. And we were on top of this tell and we were teaching the story of King Saul of Israel and his sons dying on Mount Gilboa. Because to the west, Mount Gilboa kind of shielded, shielded us from the valley of Megiddo that laid out to the east, the Jordan River Valley. And we're up there teaching. And I, and I see what looks like a young Palestinian kid. This is in the West Bank territory in jeans and a t-shirt, but with a walking stick And he's kind of walking around the base of the hill that we're up on. So we're kind of watching him from below. And he's whistling as he's going. But you can tell he's not like whistling a song. Sounds like he's whistling at someone or something. But you can't see him anywhere. And he kind of walks around the base of the hill, whistling. And then he disappears. And it's like, I wonder what he was doing. Not less than 30 seconds later, here comes this sheep walking his exact path. Then another one. Then another one probably anywhere between 35 and 50 sheep. And at the very tail end, a sheep dog pushing them on the path. All followed the shepherd to where we went to the other side of the hill. We watched where he had gone and sat down by a stream. He was just sitting on a rock. And one at a time, each one of the sheep came and started drinking. The only reason mercy follows behind our brokenness is because Jesus went first on the path to the cross And when he sat down at the right hand of God, having judged sin, our sin could be forgiven. And God could, in loyalty and in obligation and in faithfulness, forgive us for our sin. When I really began to understand the concept of mercy, it changed the way I prayed, very specifically the way I I prayed for forgiveness about three years ago. Before, when I would sin, sins of commission, sins of omission... Sins of commission, sins you commit that you shouldn't have. Sins of omission, things God told you to do that you didn't, you were disobedient in, so you didn't act, but inaction was sin. I'd go to God, and I used to go to God like this. God, I'm so sorry, I confess that was sin, and I'm sorry, please forgive me. I added to that about three years ago, God, I know you told me to do that, and I didn't. I know you told me to do that, and I did. God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And please forgive me for making you pay for this. Forgiveness. I'm sorry that to forgive this sin today, you had to lay down on a cross. I understand for you to forgive this sin. It doesn't mean that you don't care about it. It means you had to punish it. And I understand that you can only forgive me because you punished Jesus. So I'm not only sorry for sinning, I'm sorry for what you had to do to Jesus because of me. I'm sorry. 
It not only changes the way you pray, it changes the way you think about sin when you pray that prayer two or three times and you really think about it. You get to a point where you want to stop hurting Jesus. Not just where you want to go to heaven, but where you want to stop hurting Jesus with your sin. That's mercy. That's what Jesus offers those of us who are followers of his. Mercy can follow us because Jesus went first to the cross. It's a great spiritual attribute. The third spiritual attribute we find in verse 6 is that God is spiritually eternal. As a student of Jewish history, this one might be my favorite one. God is spiritually eternal. You say, why do you say that? Look at what David says and then let's unpack it in the context of his life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The key to helping us understand that David had a spiritually eternal relationship with God is the phrase, house of the Lord. Because here's what you need to remember. The house of the Lord was not a physical structure located on earth at the time that David wrote Psalm 23. So he wasn't talking about the church building. There wasn't one. He wasn't talking about the Jerusalem temple that maybe you've seen a picture of. There wasn't one. Dude, maybe he's talking about the tabernacle. Oh, not really. In David's time, the Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle altar and the tent were actually set up in Gibeon several dozen miles away. So, like, he had to be talking about something different. And he was talking about the house of the Lord. He was just talking about the real one, not the temporary one. He said, what do you mean? David, like all the kings of Israel, was commanded in Deuteronomy 17, 18, when they became king, to write by hand their own copy of the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were to write their entire copy that they had to read, and then they were to read it all the days of their life, which means David would have understood that Exodus 25:40 says that the house of the Lord is not on earth, it's in heaven. We've only built a model of the one that's in heaven on earth because as God was telling Moses all the things he was supposed to put in the temple, the tabernacle at the time, He reminded him in verse 40, see that you make everything in the tabernacle according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. God was showing Moses a picture of something that was in heaven that he wanted him to build a model of on earth. Let me show you how the New Testament theology unpacks this. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews is telling us why Jesus is a better high priest than the high priest of Israel. And he says this in Hebrews 8, 5, the high priest of Israel served at a sanctuary that's only a copy and a shadow of what's really in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. So David understands that there is a temple in heaven. And he says, I want to be in that one. I want to be in that one. I want to spiritually be with you for an eternity. Listen to how David would eloquently put this later in Psalm 27.4. Remember, again, living and dying in an age where there was not a physical building. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This was not a place. This was a presence And David wasn't looking for that presence in Jerusalem. He was looking for that presence in eternity. David had this spiritually 
eternal relationship with God because he saw his relationship to God as a spiritual commitment to live by God's spiritual promises. It's not all about the here and the now. The here and the now is just practice for the there and forever. So David is talking about his God and he was saying, I serve a God who is spiritually eternal and he is seeing not a building just north of the city of David. He's seeing God in heaven and saying, I want to be there with you. I want to be with my spiritual and eternal God. And listen, this is the thing that makes Christianity unique and this is the thing that makes scripture important. That we live by promises that are eternal and spiritual, not for here only. Remember 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not sight. We said last week, Christians are unique in that we do not judge our God based on our circumstances. We judge our God based on his promises. Which is why scripture is so important. Because if scripture weren't important, we might never see God as our shepherd. Some of you are looking at your life in 2022 and you say, I don't feel like God is my shepherd who was with me every day. That's because you're looking in the wrong place to figure out who God is. If you're looking at your circumstances, you won't see God as shepherd. If maybe you're looking at your relationships, their health or unhealth, you might not see God as your shepherd. If you're looking at your job or your financial security in order to judge how good God is, you might not see God as your shepherd. If you find comfort from who's in charge politically or how good your church is doing, you might not find comfort. But I promise you this, if you're studying this thing to figure out who God is, you're going to find out he's the shepherd. See, David didn't live by circumstances. He didn't live by global alliances. He was one of the few kings of Israel who wasn't looking for help from some political party or political power. David was the person who always went back to the promises of God and said, the only thing that tells me who God is and how I should live my life is God's word. So he says, I want to be with you in your temple. It's like, David, there isn't one of those. And he's like, yeah, not here, but there is there. Haven't you read Exodus 25, 40? Had to write a copy when I became king. Been reading it every year. What we have here is just a pattern of what's real up there. Man, I can't wait to be there. I'm just going to spend every day gazing on who God is when I get there. So it's interesting about David and his relationship with Jesus. His relationship with God. He said, God, I can't wait to be with you forever. It's a great term in the Hebrew language. What you need to understand is this is a time frame both different and beyond all the days of my life. So David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Okay, so my life is marked by brokenness. But God takes the brokenness and he makes it useful. And God takes my brokenness and man, he continues to forgive me because he's obligated himself by his loyal love. So my life is broken, but my life is useful. And my life is sinful, but my God is merciful. But thank God one day this one's going to be over. And then I'll dwell in that heavenly house of God forever. David served a God that was spiritually eternal. And here would be the question. David, in his relationship, David Saul's relationship is spiritual and eternal And this psalm was his attempt to orient his life around his beliefs. My question for you as you end 2022 and move into 2023, do you see your relationship with God as primarily spiritual and eternal? And what are you doing to orient yourself around those beliefs so that you never forget it? 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I'm broken, but God is good. I'm sinful, but God is merciful. That's like the summary of our story on this earth. Thank God it's not the end of the story. One day, we're going to be with God where he is forever. What does that do to your heart and how does it make you feel? One of our primary goals as a church next year is for us to walk with God, for us to live with Jesus in our life every day. So we put these goals in your bulletin every Sunday. If it's your first Sunday in December because you've been traveling, busy, sick, you should pull this out. If you've been here before, maybe you've already been working on this. We're talking about daily walking with Jesus. We're asking you to evaluate your year in 2022. Daily time with God, spiritual community, prayer, fasting, serving others, generosity. Some of you are thinking, I don't know how to do these things. That's okay. In January, this is our sermon series. We're going to do a series in January based on John 15 and how John 15 tells us how we can thrive spiritually if literally at the middle of our heartbeat is our relationship with Jesus. So we'll teach you how to have daily time with God, spiritual community, prayer and fasting, serving others, generosity. What I hope you'll do is before the end of the year is that you'll go back through 2022 and evaluate how you did last year and then make some new goals for how you can do this year. One of the things we're doing as a church to help you get some training wheels for spending time with God every day is we're asking our church to read through the Bible in a year. If you click on that little QR code, it'll kind of take you to our page, our, our website page that we put together to help you join a Bible reading group and get structured for that. We have today, just like last week at our Connection Center, kind of a Bible reading display set up with about a half dozen different study Bibles you might want to choose from, several different journals that you can choose from, and some like paper copies of what's on the website to help you get engaged in your year with God. The question is, will you in 2023 try to dwell with God forever? I was reading this week in one of my study Bibles. And I read Charles Spurgeon say something um, that I'd never heard before about Psalm 23.6. that I thought, that's, that's good, that's cool. Spurgeon said this. He said, for followers of Jesus who every day on earth are reliant on Jesus and aware of his goodness and mercy to connect them to God. For followers of Jesus who try to spend their time on earth walking with Jesus. He said, going to heaven for them is not a matter of moving houses as much as it is just moving upstairs in the same house. Because they've already spent every day of their life in the house of the Lord. Because they chose to wake up every day in the house of the Lord and go to bed every night in the house of the Lord. So for Christians who walk with Jesus, eternity isn't as much about finding a new home as just getting to go upstairs in the same home. That's cool. That's cool. Are you even in the house? Or will the greatest surprise of heaven be that you have to look at Jesus every day? Because you've never even thought about doing that. You have to talk to Jesus every day because you never even thought about doing that. You have to hang out with Christians every day. For some of you, that makes you cringe. You're like, oh man, that's heaven? Is there a purgatory? I mean, could that be at the like, no, like that? Yeah, that's heaven. Spurgeon said, when you live your life, in the house of the Lord. Your eternal transition. Not as much about finding a new house as just walking upstairs. I love that. Will you make a commitment to walk with your shepherd? 
next year who wants to walk with you. The last part of the year, we'll release a podcast on the Activate platform that's just some kind of simple tips, helpful reminders about how to actually get into your Bible, start a commitment, keep a commitment. I think it'll be useful for answering 10 questions that you might have about how can I really do this. But all of that like begins with commitment. So what has God said to your heart today? And what do you need to do to act on that? Here's what I know. No matter what next week holds, the week after holds the possibility for goodness and mercy because it follows every day of your life. But you can choose every day of your life to dwell in this spiritually eternal house of God if you will choose to walk with Jesus. As we close our service, you're going to have some prayer meditation questions to kind of take what you learn and apply them to your own life and your own relationship with Jesus. I'd ask you to take these three minutes and just take a deep breath, read the question, answer the question, turn that answer into a prayer. And at the end, we'll come back and sing another great Christmas hymn to get our hearts ready for this great Christmas week. And then we'll dismiss, and Lord willing, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we'll maybe see some family and some friends and neighbors, maybe some people who go to our church, who finally surrender their lives to Jesus and make him Lord and Savior of their life. Heavenly Father, thank you that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. And thank you, like David, that we can even now choose to dwell in that spiritually eternal house of the Lord. The physical structure hadn't been built in David's lifetime, but he wasn't thinking of that one. He was thinking of the eternal one where he wanted to dwell with you, and he believed he would one day. God, open our hearts and our minds for some transparency, vulnerability, and honesty as we answer these prayer meditations and direct our thoughts towards you and the help we need from you in our spiritual walk. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.